Let me invite you to stand for our scripture reading. We're in the book of Romans, so you can turn there or <clears throat> click, click open your apps to Romans chapter 1. We're just getting going. And I'll read this morning Romans 1, 8 through 17, and I'm going to focus on verses 16 and 17 as really a thesis of Romans. Now, we have to understand that Romans is a letter, so it's not an essay, but there is a thesis statement sort of in there, and it's in verses 16 and 17, so we're going to focus on that. But here, in the, still in the introductory verses, we find out Paul hasn't been able to visit the Romans yet, the church there, but he uh, gives these wonderful instructions to them. So let's look together. I'll read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now come, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, remind us of that wonderful truth. The righteous shall live by faith. Remind us of the power of the gospel. Grip our hearts and our minds today. Through your truth, we pray in my humble effort here. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. What if I told you that little golf course they have in Augusta, you know, the National Golf Club. What if I told you, nah, it's just a patch of grass? What if I told you that Daytona International Speedway, nah, it's just a bunch of concrete? What if I told you, now I'm going to need somebody to es escort me to my car. What if I told you, oh, the Alamo? Yeah, it's just some old Spanish mission. Now I'm going to really need to be escorted. What if I told you the Cibolo Nature Center? You know, that'd be a great spot for a Target, a Chick-fil-A, and 10,000 homes. <laughs> what I'm doing there is I'm taking something that is important to people, and I am taking it for granted. I am making it nothing. And this is something we see frequently in our culture, which really assaults everything sacred, sure, 
But did you know Christians sometimes do this too, and they do it with the gospel. We take the gospel for granted. I mean, if we really understood the gospel message, we would be astounded every day. We would start every day on our face praising God for the good things he has done for us in Christ and the salvation that we have. What I'm getting at here is the gospel is oftentimes so much more than what Christians think it is. Oh, you know, it's just God rescued us from sin and death and hell. Hmm. We get over familiar with the gospel message. And what I'm going to show you today is really all that that gospel message is. And we're going to delve deep into it because what a person who doesn't know Christ needs, what do they need? The gospel. But what does a Christian need? What does someone who has already received the gospel message by faith and they're saved, what do they need? They need the gospel. We need the gospel to save us. We need the gospel to sanctify us. The gospel is, and if you look, we have an illustration here. You see that door over there. The gospel's the doorway. It's how you come in, but it is also the pathway for how we live the rest of the Christian life. What do I mean by that? I mean, once you come to faith and you come into the door, you live the rest of your Christian life based out of the truth and the power of the gospel. That is why the gospel is so important. That is why we cannot take it for granted. Because, see, the gospel message gives us the things we so desperately need to navigate this world and fight against our sin. It gives us, and there's three points here that are in an outline in your bulletin, or you can click on the bulletin if you're live streaming with us uh, in the link above the window. It gives us three things, gospel confidence, gospel power, gospel righteousness. And it is, uh, it's easy to remember because it's CPR and we all need a little cardiopulmonary resuscitation, gospel style. And that's what I hope you get this morning. So first, the gospel gives us this confidence. And this is in the first half of verse 16. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, usually when we read those words, we're kind of like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's sort of a fighting stance that we take against all comers. But Paul is writing to Christians. Remember, look back in verse 6 and 7. He says he's writing to those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's in verse 6. And then verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. When he says he's not ashamed of the gospel, typically Christians will quote this as a way to sort of uh, take a fighting stance towards the world. But these are not fighting words. He's writing in-house to other Christians, and what he is saying there, he's saying he's not ashamed of what the gospel has made him, of how his life, because let's remember he's writing these words, how his life did an absolute 180, an absolute change. Who was the Apostle Paul? He had invested his life. He had gone to rabbinic school. He calls himself 
biographically a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had invested, he had gone that direction, even to the point we meet him first at the end of Acts 7, and they have just stoned Stephen, and he has condoned killing a Christian, and he was persecuting the church. And so for Paul, who would shortly after that moment with Stephen meet the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was not ashamed of what the gospel had made him in this change. Understand, he lost reputation. He lost occupation. He lost relationships in the change that the gospel wrought in him. But he was not ashamed of that. He was not ashamed of the change that had happened, the repentance. And he was not afraid either of the ridicule and the scorn. And you see that in the latter chapters of Acts as Paul interacts with uh, Felix and others uh, at his trial. And he was not afraid, not ashamed of his past, his present, or what God was making him in the future. In other words, when we say we're not ashamed of the gospel, what we are saying is that the gospel conveys to us an identity, a purpose. If we delve into the gospel, we understand that we are loved by God. We look at the cross and we see that God's wrath has been turned away from us. The judgment due to us for sin fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so it's in the gospel that we can look in a redemptive way at our past, at our present, and at our future. You know, a couple, I think it was a couple of years ago now, I was uh, trimming trees and I had my, had my pole saw going. And it must have been quite comic because there I am on the top of an aluminum ladder, not the top, you know, you're not supposed to stand on the top. And maybe one, one step down, and I'm extending out, really going for it. I was really going for it with this pole saw. So, you know, kind of understand the physics of it. The pole saw goes out, and I'm exerting force down here, and all of a sudden the ladder is now a fulcrum and handling more force than it should. And not to worry, it was only six feet, but the ladder just came out from under me, and I'm sitting there on the ground. I'm like, oh, you know, hurting a little bit. I'm like, oh, did I break my collarbone? No, that baby's in one piece. Oh, you know, I had put all my confidence and all my trust in this ladder and really challenged it with force and weight, and it didn't hold up. I looked down at the ladder after I fell. I was like, why did that happen? I looked down the whole uh, bottom of the ladder, this aluminum ladder is torqued and failed while I was on it. What do you take and put your confidence in? What do you put your confidence in? All of us would want to say, oh, I, I put it in the Lord Jesus Christ, 100%. Then why are Christians acting like politics are ultimate? Like the power in this world really resides in Washington, D.C. 
If that is you, you need to change where you place your confidence because otherwise you're going to end up on the ground and it hurts, trust me. What do you put your confidence in when something happens to you? Or let's say you go to the doc and you're diagnosed with something you don't like, what happens? We immediately switch into research mode. We sit down with Dr. Google and we're going to figure this out. That's placing our confidence really in knowledge, isn't it? That we would place our faith in knowledge and our ability to sort of organize and think our way out of it. And if I read just the right articles, I'm going to get ahead of this thing. And if I read just the right research, I'm going to know enough to beat this thing. And that's really placing our confidence in knowledge, isn't it? And no doubt, do your research, sure. But what about if instead of our first instinct of doing research and seeking knowledge, what if our first instinct was to go to the Lord in prayer and seek his face, then do your research? You know, we have a intellectual tradition in our denomination, and it's well and good and everything, but let me tell you, seminary degrees don't make a pastor either. And you can be well-educated, called to the ministry, but it is not knowledge which will ultimately see the kingdom come. It is a power that comes from the gospel. And so we place our confidence then, not in the politicians, oh, please don't do that, not in the ability that we have to research and read and learn and gain knowledge, but in one thing, what God says is true about us in the gospel, that we are tragically fallen in Adam and Eve, but we are blessedly loved by a God who cares about us and loves us and delights in us in Christ. You see, we are not ashamed of the gospel, what it has made us, what it has done and claimed for our past. We are not ashamed of how the gospel is shaping and forming us. And the good news is God is not ashamed of us either. That in Christ, and this is uh, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, we read this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We're not ashamed of the gospel. And the good news is Jesus isn't ashamed of us. If we belong to him, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, and then one more place in Hebrews the writer of Hebrews gives us this, and it connects to the understanding of not being ashamed what the gospel has made you into. Just like the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Paul's life did a 180, so our life may change. And the thing is, we don't want to hide what we were because it's an opportunity to display how powerful the gospel is and where we place our confidence. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, the lead-in verse, the contextual verse for the hall of faith in Hebrews eleven sixteen, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them 
a city. What good news. We place our confidence in the gospel. We are not ashamed. Well, God isn't ashamed of us. Jesus, not ashamed to call us brothers. That is the gospel confidence. That's what we put our confidence in. That's what we rest in. And then not only does the gospel give us this confidence, but the gospel gives us power. This is in the uh, second part of verse 16, back to Romans 1. Closest you'll get biblically to a straight-up definition of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is a display of God's power and God's power in transforming and changing people and changing minds and changing hearts. It's the power to reverse the fall and the effects of sin. The gospel is the power to change. And we need that power to change in our battle against sin. The gospel is the power to love our enemies. The gospel is so much more than forgiveness. And what do Christians typically do? They make the gospel only about forgiveness. It's as if the gospel is the get-out-of-hell-free card. Oh, the gospel is so much more. It is a display of God's power. It is the power, the transformative power, which saves us. And the tendency for Christians is to say, well, really, the gospel is four points. You know, if someone were to ask you, well, what is this good news? What is this gospel message? We might answer Something like this, God loves you, you're a sinner, you can't have a relationship with God because he's holy and you're a sinner, that's the second point, so God is holy, you're a sinner. What did God do? He sent Christ for us, that's the third point. And then the fourth point, by believing in Christ, you receive the salvation from your sins and are rescued and can have a relationship with God. That's the gospel in four points. And that is a helpful summary to understand that and to be able to articulate that as God's people. Here's the thing. That's only the beginning. We're not talking about... Because, see, really, to know the power of the gospel, you also have to know something of the redemptive benefits you receive in the gospel. Well, what are those? Well, one of them is justification. Justification, big theological word, where we come to understand that the record of our sins is exchanged for Christ's perfect record, such that our standing with God is secure. And just as Christ's righteousness is perfect, our righteousness in God's eyes is perfect and still being perfected. And so that's one of the benefits. Another one is adoption. Adoption is that truth that we are welcomed into the forever family and have a familial relationship with God. That's adoption. So justification, adoption, these are the benefits that flow from salvation. But again, The gospel is more than four points. There's also sanctification. The application of all this power as our character and our life becomes more and more like Christ. That's a benefit of salvation. And then another one is the faith to persevere 
all the way to the end. Faith, by its very nature, goes all the way to the end because God upholds this faith. And we haven't even talked about heaven yet. And people think, oh, you know, I've told you before, heaven is like an unending church service. People don't want that. Imagine instead heaven as the best thing happening or the best thing that has ever happened in your life or think about your best day you've ever had in your entire life and then think about that happening for eternity. Who doesn't want that? And so these are the benefits that flow from all flow from the gospel. So our tendency as Christians is to truncate, to shrink down the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card. But it is so much more than that. It is the power for salvation in the Christian life, a salvation that includes justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification, heaven. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, And notice this power, everyone who believes, everyone who believes. To the Jew first, this is a chronological statement because God began with the the Jews. They were his people, and the gospel message spread out to others, to the Greeks. So it is a wide open gospel message to whomever would come. That is the power of the gospel. You know, I... We all know what it's like not to have power. Uh, We were blessed to experience that in February. And one of the breakers on our breaker panel, thank you, ERCOT, um, failed, you know, because of all the switching the power on and off, and it got weak, and I I called up our uh, electrician, and I I know him, and I talked with him, and I was getting him scheduling that appointment to come out and replace this breaker. And I said, whoa, I think you're busy right now. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, everybody wants a whole home generator. That's all we're putting in right now. Whole home generator. Why is that? Well, it's because if you live life without power, you don't want to go back to that point again. That's suffering. We actually need power. And the thing is, the, we would do anything, spend any amount of money, use all kinds of ingenuity to avoid the unpleasantness of being without power. But in the Christian life, the true power is the power for weakness. Because in our weakness... And the longings that we have for a world that is different than the way the world is, those longings, those laments, the pain you experience, the weakness you and I have are not things to cover up and hide, but they're things to avail ourselves of this power that is outside of us, this dependency That is outside of us. I'm not telling you not to uh, get the whole home generator. I'm saying, and I'm not telling you not to be prepared, but I'm saying that we cannot rely on our money and our ingenuity 
to get ourselves out of every single uncomfortable situation we're in. That God meets us in those uncomfortable situations where we're weak. And it's at that point that we're weak, that we're really at the end of our resources, that we come to find God's power. You will know God's power when your power ends. And you will know it in a way that you've never known it perhaps before. We use our money, our ingenuity to avoid needing anything. But it is weak, in weakness, the weakness of a Christian, that's where real power is because we've given up on ourselves and we are wholly dependent on the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Let's together be a community that is vulnerable with each other, real with each other, trusting with each other to say, hey, I really need the power of the gospel to show up in my life in this area. Would you pray for me? Would you pray that I would see the power of God as I'm in this frustrating situation and I want to avoid it and I want to run away from it and I want to cover it up and I want to project to you that I have my act together because this is Bernie, Texas. This is Bernie. We're all supposed to have it together. But true power is found in our weakness as we rely on and depend only on this gospel power. So, so far we've seen gospel confidence, gospel power. Don't hide your weakness. And then in verse 17, we see gospel righteousness. Look in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is a major theme. I would, I would offer you this. It is the theme of Romans. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. What does this mean? Well, certainly we know God is perfect and he is holy. I take this righteousness to really be the rightness of God, that he in everything is always fully, completely right, that his righteousness, you can think of it this way as you think about the attributes of God, his righteousness is the overarching quality, characteristic, attribute with his holy, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, beauty, mercy, love, all subsumed under that righteousness. I believe that God's righteousness is seen best in the gospel and it is this righteousness of God, which is a shorthand way of relating to us, Paul's shorthand way of relating to us all, that is right with God. And that's the subject for the rest of Romans. Paul will unpack the righteousness of God, a righteousness from God revealed against the sin of people, the righteousness of God revealed in debt in a in-depth presentation of the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed in all his promises for his people and his church. And you notice there, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's a way of saying from beginning to end, 
from beginning to end, the righteousness of God is revealed. His rightness, in other words, his, the magnificence and perfection of his plan of redemption is revealed. And then there's a quotation here from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Those who belong to God in Christ live by faith. See, it is not our performance that secures our relationship with God. I'll tell you about performance. In 15.10, Martin Luther the monk was ascending Pilate's stairs. Now, Pilate's stairs, there were 28 stairs that were uh, brought to Rome in the 4th century. These were marble stairs encased in wood. And we all know this was sort of the time of relics in the Christian life. And so it, this was believed to be where uh, Christ was put on trial. And the Pope had said that if you ascend these stairs on your knees, these 28 stairs, I'm not sure some of us, we'd only make two or three on our knees. But if you ascend these stairs on your knees, when you get to the top, you can purchase an indulgence and someone, get someone out of purgatory. And so Luther was doing this. He had come to Rome, and he was ascending the stairs on his knees. And you know what verse came to mind? This one. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, he was pursuing performance to secure his relationship with God, thinking, if I do this, I'm going to be just a little closer to God. And you and I, we might look at that and sort of chuckle, but some of us think that as well. We think, oh, if I have my devotions today, God's going to love me a little bit better. I'm going to have a little bit more sway in my prayer life, or I'm, I'm really living, you know, it is uh, 9.49 in the morning, and I haven't really had a blowout sin yet. So God loves me more, plus I'm in church. This is something subtle, but it's insidious and evil, isn't it? Because that is not the righteous shall live by faith. That's the righteous shall live by my performance. And the beauty of the gospel is, as it reveals God's righteousness, we know no amount of performance will ever bridge the infinite gap between a holy God and sinners. That's never going to happen. Never going to happen? Never going to happen. You on your best day? Never going to happen. Me on my best day? Not even close. And so it's only through the gospel that we can have a relationship with God, that we see most fully the awesome nature of God, that his righteousness is revealed in the fact that he takes human performance out of it. And yes, the Christian life requires effort. But what Luther realized, and this was surely on his pathway to conversion, he realized in that moment he had underestimated God's holiness, he had overestimated his own performance. You know, when you talk to somebody and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person. Next time you hear that, say, well, that's got nothing to do with it. Only God is good. And by the way, you are underestimating God's goodness, His righteousness. And while you're doing that, not only that, 
you are overestimating your goodness. And challenge that, because that is something that has permeated Christianity, this idea that it's up to us, that it's our performance which secures our relationship with God. It isn't. If you believe that, that is not Christianity. Right, the righteousness of God is a cause, the cause for us to worship, the cause for us to celebrate, the cause for us to come together as a church and enjoy all that God has done for us in Christ. That is the power of the gospel. And so I hope you've seen that we together don't come into the Christian life through the gospel and then cast this gospel message aside and say, well, give us the deep stuff. The gospel is the deep stuff. The gospel is our confidence, our power, and our righteousness. The gospel saves us and it sanctifies us. And it takes us all the way home. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for the good news of the gospel and what you have revealed to us, how we see your holiness, justice, goodness, truth, mercy, and love in the gospel. We thank you for the power of the gospel that we together don't have to hide our weakness, but instead our weakness becomes the forum to display your power to the watching world. And we thank you that we can be confident in the gospel alone, that you love us, that you have given us an identity and a purpose. We rejoice in that. Help us as your people to start with the gospel and to stay with the gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.